Well, I want to um, welcome this tremendous crowd uh, today uh, here. I personally am virtual here. I'm only, uh, this only appears to be me uh, here uh, uh, sitting behind this uh, pulpit. Uh, but uh, it's great to see all of you. We anticipated the, um, the fact of, of the uh, Marathon Sunday and all of that. Daylight saving time, too. I wonder if there were people who came, would have been an hour early and they gave up and went home, or is, will they arrive at, right at the end of the service? I can't remember which way it goes. I know we fall back, though. We get an extra hour, and so that's a great thing uh, here. I really want to um, thank uh, Jason so much for his uh, beautiful uh, message, uh, challenging message last week. It was just... Uh, Wonderful, and I again want to thank, uh, as it did last week, thank Steve Kahneman and all the other men who worked on the uh, and participated in our men's retreat. I, I hope uh, because it was just it was great. It was just perfect for uh, the the group, and and there was great participation and all of that. I hope that you have a copy of the uh, of the notes for the sermon today. I, I see. Um, uh, Spencer is handing them out. If anybody needs one, just hold up your hand, and uh, he will take care of you uh, for that. Has the text that you just heard, uh, Amy and, and Ike reading for us, and um, and uh, also has on the back some notes that I'm going to be um, be following. Uh, and it takes us into a time that's that's kind of difficult. Uh, we we don't like to emphasize conflict, especially around around Jesus. But this is this is a passage that that goes for uh, goes into some serious uh, conflict, and we need to look at it and see what's what's happening in this in this passage. Luke is we're in the early stages of Jesus' ministry, the sixth chapter. That the ministry really started in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And uh, Luke has been leading us through these early stages of Jesus' ministry. Uh, just, just to remind you, since it's been sort of two weeks, uh, at least two weeks, but since we last were uh, looking at Luke, it really starts with Jesus going to Nazareth in chapter 4 and, and uh, teaching there. The response, positive and then very negative. He's teaching in that synagogue. He goes down to Capernaum. He overthrows demonic forces, he casts out a fever and, and so forth. He heals throngs of people who are sick who come to him in the evening, people who are disturbed. He calls a reluctant Simon, whom we, of course, know better as Peter, by uh, this, this amazing catch of fish and all of that. We go, there's this situation where a leper comes up to him, a person that's not supposed to be touched. Jesus touches him and, and cleanses him from that leprosy. There's a man that uh, the throngs just come because Jesus can do these things and they just surround him and nobody can get to him, but they're, um, he's teaching one day and the, the friends of a man who is just totally disabled is uh, tear through the, the ceiling uh, uh, tiles that are, out, are outside the, the ceiling of the house where he is and let the man down. Jesus surprises everybody by forgiving his sins and, and scandalizes a, a, a many of them before he heals 
the man. Then we go to the story of uh, the calling of Levi and uh, feasting with tax collectors and sinners and the question about fasting. Why don't you, your people fast? And Jesus refuses fasting. And as we talked about, this was some of our last um, uh, reflections on Luke, that Jesus talks about the, the, the wineskins and the wine and so forth. And I suggested to you that the way in which Luke, the, the, the form of that teaching that Luke remembers and wants to record is one in which Jesus refuses the new, still fermenting wine of the Pharisees and their rigorism and so forth for the old wine of God's generosity and God's joy. And so they've been going through a lot of things. And Luke has thought about all of these things. He's no doubt taught all of them in the past and so forth, puts them together. He wants us to think about them as they unfold. He doesn't usually, almost all the way through, and this is characteristic of the Gospels in general, he doesn't explain them to us. He expects that we're going to be uh, reflecting on them, thinking about them over and over and over again. And so here we come to a situation in which the, there's been this kind of growing hostility, growing antipathy. The, the people that, that are the normal teachers in synagogues where Jesus would be go, and, uh, go uh, usually would normally be Pharisees. They, that was sort of the, the role that they especially loved to, to take. And, and uh, scribes along with them, those are people who were professionally trained as interpreters of the law. And they um, are increasingly seeing Jesus as a danger to uh, their understanding of the law, to, the, to, the, to just the whole meaning of what it means to keep the law of God and to become a pure community of God's people. And so in our text for today, really it comes to a, a parting of the ways, as we might say. Uh, in our passage, it's, uh, Luke um, really focuses around the, the issue of the Sabbath, but there are all these other things that are behind that that uh, just come to focus in, around the issue of the Sabbath. And it's that issue of the Sabbath in our text that, that brings these respected teachers. These are teachers that are, you know, uh, Teachers like in a church and teachers, you know, in schools and, and, and so forth. These respected teachers at the, at the end of a particular section to a kind of fury about Jesus, insisting that something has to be done about, them, about him. So, and that breaks out after, of all things, Jesus heals a man who has a crippled hand, a withered hand, as it's often described in, the, in, uh, in translating the text. Chapter 6 of Luke, verse 11. These men, says, namely the Pharisees and the scribes and teachers of the Torah that were there watching Jesus, were filled with mindless fury. That's the translation of this word that, that Luke uses, anoia. And they began talking intensely with each other what they might do to Jesus. They are definitely not going to teach Jesus' message. Rather, they oppose it emphatically. And so 
in contrast to these teachers, who one might think with a prophet coming, they would be the, the normal ones to, 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 to take up the prophet's message and teach it to the people. Jesus is, uh, I wouldn't say forced, but he chooses to name a group of 12 of his own as emissaries. The, the Greek word is apostolos, from which we get apostle. So these are the ones that are there at the end of that as the, the reading sort of stopped at the, at the point where Jesus is about to, to name them. So in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, this is the very last part of our, our text for today. So immediately after the, the Pharisees and scribes are filled with fury and so forth in, in trying to figure out what they must, might do, do to Jesus, and it happened during these days. This is one of those phrases that Luke likes to use. It's, if you go to the King James Version, you, uh, uh, you'll find, and it came to pass that. And it's a phrase that's used, as I've said before, over and over and over again in the, in the uh, Hebrew scriptures. And uh, Luke loves to use it. It, it. it occurs in Matthew and in Mark a few times, but Luke uses it over and over again as a way of both sounding like scripture, but also it has a certain indefiniteness to it. Luke knows that we're not doing an exact series of events, but it happened during these days that he, that is Jesus, went out onto the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in that prayer with God. Then when day came, he called together his disciples and selected 12 of them. And these he designated apostles. Simon, whom he also named Rock, that is Petros, Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon who was called a zealot and Judas the son of James and Judas Iscariot who became a betrayer. In a sense these, well I, I think not just in a sense, these 12, because there's 12 of them, they really are intended to represent Israel, the people of Israel, and, and stand in some symbolic relationship to the whole, whole people. If you look through the, the list of names, you, you, you might not catch because so many of them have been changed sort of into more like English names, uh, but there are two Jacobs in here. Uh, Jacob being, of course, the name of Israel, the ancestor of, the, of the, one of the three great patriarchs. Because the, the name James in the New Testament is Jacobos in Greek, and it's Jacob in, um, if you, one goes back to, uh, to Hebrew. So there are these two Jameses, two Jacobs. There are two who are named Judah. Judah is one of the great tribes. It's the tribe from which David came. And so we have two Judas. Now they, it comes into Greek and then into English as Judas which sounds a great deal different to us because of Judas Iscariot. But there's also Judas, the son of yet another Jacob, the son of James. And so we have those two, again, named for tribes of Israel. And there are two Simeons. Now, it gets 
shifts over to Simon, so it doesn't sound quite like the, the name of the tribe, but there are two that are named after the tribe of Simeon. Well, there's Simon, Peter, of course, and Simon, who's a zealot. And there's one who's named Yohanan, a good old Hebrew name, and we get that as John. Um, there are three Aramaic names, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, which means the twin. And there are even two Greek names among them, Andrew and Philip. There is this range of people. Andre, uh, Andrew means, you know, comes... Well, it comes from the Greek word Andreas, and it is the word Andreas. And Philippos was the name of Alexander the Great's father. Uh, that's how that name became famous, and it uh, means a, a horseman, a horse lover, and so forth. They are from this growing group of disciples, of learners around Jesus. And they are chosen after a whole night of prayer. By, by Jesus. He goes out, as it been, Luke had indicated earlier, out into a desert place and prays. And here he had spent, after this crisis in which the teachers, who should have been the ones to carry forward the message of the kingdom, are enraged at Jesus and want to do something about him. These are the ones that Jesus chooses. And as we know already from, from Peter, Peter thinks of himself as unworthy and has to be one who is going to learn. And so we are going to follow some of them in their process of learning. What led to the break, though? How did this, this splitting of the paths with the, the teachers, those who were respected in the community, going one direction and evaluating Jesus one way, and though these disciples, fishermen, tax collector, others, go a different direction. It had been growing, but Luke in this section tells us two incidents, both centered on the Sabbath, to mark what's at stake. Actually, both stories, at least as I read them, seem rather strange, but they mark these ways of thinking. First, on the Sabbath, a group of disciples with Jesus are walking through standing grain. And we usually gets translated grain fields. I don't know. I mean, they, you can do a lot of damage to a grain crop by just a whole big slew of people walking through it. So I hope they were being careful. I do not know. But they decide that they want to pick some of the grain. They pick, pick off the heads of, of the grain. It evidently is at a point where it can be uh, eaten, it's ready to be harvested. They rub it together in their hands and they eat. It's a snack. They don't seem to be thinking about being lawbreakers, just probably listening to Jesus as he's going along. At least that's what we'd imagine. And somehow here out in this field, I take it it's a field, walking through standing grain, the Pharisees are observing them. And they question, they don't question Jesus, they question the disciples. This is Luke chapter 6, verses 1 and, and 2. And it happened one Sabbath that he was walking through the sanding grain, and his disciples started plucking and eating the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Now some of the Pharisees asked them, Why are you doing what's not lawful? on the Sabbath. Now, I, I don't know. I, I, 
think it's pretty clear that Jesus doesn't think that his disciples are offending God and breaking God's commands. Obviously, if Jesus had thought that this was a great offense to God, he might have done something else about it. But Jesus hears this objection, evidently. Why are you doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And he responds to it. Now, one way of responding, the way that sort of would seem natural to me, would be for him to go back to the, to the commandment in the scripture and, and show that the commandment really doesn't, doesn't touch the idea of going through the grain field and, and plucking off uh, heads of grain and, and, um, and eating them and so forth. I, I've, it's cited on the front side of your sheet there, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, which is from the Ten Commandments, which is about remembering the Sabbath day. And, and the, the, the terms that are used, I've, I've translated them a little bit more literally than they sometimes are, are translated. Remember the Sabbath day and consecrate it. That is, make, keep it, make it holy and keep it holy. Six days you shall, and here it's usually translated labor, but the word that's used is you shall serve. And it, the word is eved um, or avad, the, Greek, the, the Hebrew verb. You shall serve. And it's this term that's used for uh, a slave service. And do all your labor or all your occupation. This is malacha, word that usually means what one does for a living and all of that. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh, your God. You shall not do any of your malacha, your labor. You, your son, or your daughter, your male or female slaves, you, uh, your livestock, or the alien resident in your, in your town. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated. You're referring, of course, to the narrative about the creation of the world in Genesis 1, going into Genesis 2. This passage, as well as other passages about, um, about the, the, the command of the Sabbath, especially the ones in, in Deuteronomy 5, where you have a rep repetition of the, of, the, of the Ten Commandments, or in Exodus 31, where it's the last commandment that God gives to, to Moses before Moses comes down off, the, uh, off of Mount Sinai to, to encounter the people. But in all of these, and in other statements, the wording of the command in Hebrew seems clearly to envision the occupational work. It uses those words serving and laboring, and which one serves during six days of the week. And that includes all the labor for both men and women that's necessary to keep life going, whether they're out in the wilderness like at Mount Sinai or in towns of ancient Israel. But all of that is to be put aside one day a week for the Israelites to mark their ties to the creator of the world, as in Exodus 20, the passage we just mentioned, or their thanksgiving for deliverance from slavery, as in Deuteronomy 5, or to recognize that God has sanctified them as his holy people, as in Exodus 31. Sabbath was to be an expansion of life so that people didn't narrow their lives by enslaving themselves to their work the way that we tend to do, or maybe I should just say that I tend to do. 
just because the demands of life are often hard and hard for other people, not for me. Sabbath was to the Sabbath was to keep time open for the purposes and beauty and enjoyment of God. That's the going back to that image of the wine and the the the, the, the old wine is good. That's the rich, full, old wine that Jesus wanted to bring back. Now Jesus and his and the disciples walking through the grain fields are not farmers of that field. They are not doing their farm labor when they break off some heads of grain and rub them together and make themselves a snack. This is not like their job of fishing or tax collecting or whatever else Jesus' motley group of disciples had been doing for a living. But it's the Pharisees who are watching, and the traditions of the Pharisees were not satisfied with that kind of distinction. And there's a lot of discussion about all of this, and I'm trying my very best not to misrepresent anything, even though I'm telling it, of course, from the, story, from the point of view of, of the Lucan narrative. They were not satisfied with what just the Torah itself said because it has to be applied in new situations. It wasn't clear enough. It wasn't definitive enough. It wasn't restrictive enough. It didn't nail down the exact, to use our phrase from our tradition, command, example, or necessary inference exactly enough, like we've often done in our own tradition. In their case, it took the form of specifying 39 kinds of work that were prohibited, whether it was your occupation or not. These included harvesting and threshing, and thus picking the heads off of grain stalks and rubbing them together so you could get to something edible inside. Especially for Jesus, as he proclaimed the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, it was important that his followers realize the character of God's great gift. A gift that expressed itself in those signs of healing, forgiveness, giving life to people by freeing them from the oppressions and brokennesses that they suffer. That's why his disciples didn't fast. That's why they were celebrating with the bridegroom at a wedding feast, as Jesus characterizes it. Jesus doesn't when he looks at, hears these objections to what his disciples are doing, he doesn't argue the proper exegesis of Exodus 20, though he could have. Rather, he goes in a much more personal, human direction. Matt Henniger is here today, and so I want to reference him, footnote him, what Matt Henniger in our Monday class refers to as a relational direction. Luke 6, verses 2 through 5. Now some of the Pharisees asked them, Why are you doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Then in response, Jesus asked them, Didn't you ever read what David did when he himself was hungry along with those with him? How he entered into the house of God and then taking the loaves of the presentation, he ate them and gave to those with him. And it's not lawful for any to eat those loaves, except only the priests. And he used to say to them, the son of the human, or as 
often translated, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, obviously in this text, Jesus is referring to a passage in the Old Testament that tells the story of David. And that happens to be in, in 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6. That story is, is set after David was anointed king by Samuel, but it's before his kingship came to realization, when he was under attack by King Saul and had to flee Saul's command to have him killed. And he had sent many after him and attempted that, that himself, actually. David went to the village of Nob, of all things, all the names of a village, village of Nob, where the high priest, Ahimelech, presided over a makeshift replacement for the tabernacle. After that shrine, the tabernacle that had been at Shiloh had been largely destroyed by the Philistines. Now, when David went there, as you followed the story, it's clear, it's true, that David lied to Ahimelech and told him that he was on a mission for Saul. I think sort of giving him what in the 21st century we, we might call plausible deniability. But when, unfortunately, when Ahimelech tries to use it, um, Saul is not convinced and Saul murders Ahimelech or has him murdered. But here, Ahimelech recognized David's hunger and his need, even if he did suspect, or if, whether he did or not, that he might be telling him a story. He recognized David's hunger and his need. He knew David's character. Times were hard. He had nothing at the little shrine except the holy bread called the loaves of presentation, or it's often translated bread of the presence that were set on a special table just outside the Holy of Holies. They were not to be eaten by any but the sanctified priests. But Ahimelech let David's hunger and need override considerations of purity and exclusion. He gave the loaves to David. Now, Jesus, of course, knows that these scholars that he's talking to have read the story from 1 Samuel 21. But there's that little edge. Have they gotten the point? Jesus calls on this story as a positive example to show how God prioritizes humans. Think of that leper who's not supposed to be touched. Over rules of purity and exclusion. That's the direction Jesus is going in everything that he does. That's the direction, he says, of the kingdom of God as it's breaking in. It's just exactly the opposite of the vision and the program of the Pharisees, which was good in its own way, which was to shape a pure community within Israel. A community clearly marked off and defined against all compromises of less rigorous Jews, and even more so against from all foreigners and Gentiles. But David himself, the one especially chosen by God, chose to join in breaking such purity regulations. That's what Jesus had been showing by his actions, by his healing, by his forgiveness. And the Pharisees and scribes knew it. 
like David, just in that same pattern, those purity regulations could not and should not for Jesus, stop Jesus from touching that untouchable leper and cleansing him. Just so the practices of limit, limiting all forgiveness of sins to the Jerusalem temple and its sacrifices as run by the Sadducee high priest should not and do not stop the forgiving of sins by God through Jesus manifested also by the healing of that same disabled man, if you remember the story, by God through Jesus. Just so they should not stop Jesus from calling tax collectors and eating with tax collectors and sinners. In fact, focusing, as Jesus says, I, that's what I came for, on calling sinners. Jesus is being true to that good old wine of the scriptures and the promises of God, not the new regulations-based calls to rigorous purity that the still-fermenting new wine of the Pharisees represents, the wine that breaks apart the wineskins and spills out all the wine on the ground. That new pattern is based on the idea that the, that the Pharisees had and they developed at great, great length in the traditions, on the idea of oral tradition handed down by the Pharisees and their predecessors before them that strives to be more definite in specifying regulations than the Torah of Scripture was. It's a process that they gave a phrase to it that I've mentioned a number of times before. I doubt you would, well, you might remember, making a fence around the law was the terminology that's used in the, in the Mishnah uh, for this. The thing, though, with Jesus is that it's really no good trying to be holier than God. If God puts the standard at a place, then <laughs> there's no advantage in trying to make it more rigorous and more demanding. Now, we need to be clear. It is not that Jesus is somehow more wishy-washy or less demanding in his teaching than the Pharisees are. We're right on the verge here in this text of coming into the, the Sermon on the Plain in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to come to these verses in chapter 6, the same chapter, verses 27 to 30. Just listen to what Jesus says. I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. <laughs> what? What are we supposed to do with that? That's a lot harder to do than just not picking grain on the Sabbath or not healing on the Sabbath. But it's challenging. It's demanding in an entirely different direction than these regulations. It reaches out to the sinner. It has me to reach out to love the sinner, the enemy, the foreigner, 
even the oppressor, even that enemy. Jesus calls on me as a disciple to take the generosity that God has shown to me and to show that generosity to Is there a limit? Everybody. Even those that I don't even want to be around in any way or, or other. It doesn't make for a clearly marked off community of pure devotion, but it does continually work at the process of changing my, changing our way of thinking so that we bring people together so that we live out of generosity and joy and it manifests itself with Jesus and enjoying these banquets with tax collectors and sinners it is intent on including it says go out and <laughs> and treat all of those that you want to stay away from as well as those that are close to you with this generosity and forgiveness and prayer and all of that. And so the challenge of Jesus is, a, is that of a demanding teaching, but a demanding teaching in a, in a sharply different direction. So just as Jesus had said in chapter 5, verse 24, when he forgave the sins of that disabled man, you remember, he said, but so that you may know that the son of the human, the son of man, possesses an authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the man, get up and take your bed and go home. So now he tells them, the son of the human is Lord of the Sabbath. He doesn't tell us exactly what that means. I, I want him to tell me. But he just sets us to thinking about what that means, what it is that it means to have even the most basic regulations, regulations, so to speak, that can be pushed back to, the, to, to creation in the scriptures, to be something that have to be viewed in the light of the unfolding of the kingdom of God and the ministry of the Son of, of the human, the son, the son of Man. This is the unfolding of that promise of the son of the human in Daniel 7, 13 and 14 that we've talked about before. The one who's given dominion and glory and kingship that will not pass away. And so as we get through that part, that's been strange enough. But the, the final break comes on another Sabbath day in another synagogue. Jesus is given the role of teaching this day. But the more official teachers, the Pharisees and the scribes, are there and they're watching very explicitly. And they all recognize that there's a man sitting there in the synagogue, in the congregation, whose hand is crippled and useless to him, and everybody's watching. Luke chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. And it happened on another Sabbath that he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now a man was there and his right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees were closely watching Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath because they wanted to find a reason to accuse him. Now he himself understood their ways of reasoning. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up, stand in the center. And he rose and stood. And Jesus said to them, 
I'm asking all of you whether it's lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it. And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. <laughs> and his hand was restored. But these men were filled with mindless fury as they began talking intensely with each other what they might do to Jesus. The drama of the moment is intense. But to avoid confrontation, if Jesus had wanted to, he could have just sent maybe Simon or John over to whisper it to the man, come back tomorrow and see me. I have office hours from 3 to 5 or whatever, you know. But Jesus knows what the drama of the moment means, what the challenge of that moment means. It means, what is God about? What is God's purpose and will? And notice how Jesus almost is without movement, so to speak. He simply asks the man to stand. Then he asks a loaded question. I'm asking all of you, this is verse 9, whether it's lawful, that is, whether it's the will of God, according to the Torah, on the Sabbath, to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it. How is God shown in the Sabbath? By doing good or doing harm? Now, you know, I bet there's not a single one of us that says, oh, it's by doing harm. It's by destroying life. And Jesus knows that none of his hearers are going to go that direction either. But he also knows that the scribes who are listening will recognize that he has loaded the question. They would probably have said, neither. Don't do good, don't do harm, don't do anything. It's the Sabbath, it's the day of rest. You're not supposed to do anything. But Jesus insists. That's distorting the Torah. The Sabbath is not just for abstinence. It's abstinence from your occupation, from your labor, from your service, but for the positive practice of God's will and God's purpose. That's who this God of grace and generosity is. That's whose kingdom is breaking in. He says to the man, stretch out your hand. And then Jesus doesn't do anything. Not anything that anyone can see, except he just speaks that word, stretch out your hand. God heals the man when he stretches the hand out, restores his hand. And God does it on the Sabbath. <laughs> that shows who God is. But for the rigorous, it puts the challenge in explosive terms. The God they know would not, could not break his own regulations as they understand them. This can't be God. 
This must be something else. This must be something, maybe even demonic. They feel rage. Something has to be done. Jesus, too, knows that something has to be done. And it's, of course, as we, as we started out in this message, it's right after that that he names apostles. And he begins focusing his teaching outside the synagogue and the Sermon on the Plain that's coming up in the next verses. The rage, the fury against Jesus will continue, transmute, even grow in certain ways. By telling that man on that Sabbath to stretch out his hand and thereby inviting God through the son of the human to heal and restore that withered hand on the Sabbath. Jesus had firmly put his own foot down on the road to the cross. But also, by that action, he had lived the vision of God, his Father, that he knew. It's the challenging vision that he begins to unfold more fully in the Sermon on the Plain. That's what the Twelve and all the other disciples, right down to us, will be called to take to the entire world that God created and that God loved. Amen.